Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Listeners, and welcome to Behind the Knife's Pediatric Surgery Clinical Case Challenge Podcast. Today, we will discuss the workup and management of a patient with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. This is Amanda Jensen from Riley Children's in Indianapolis. I am one of the current pediatric surgery fellows. Today, I have with me two special guests, starting with Dr. Brian Gray. Hey, everyone. I'm Brian Gray. I'm the Pediatric Surgery <laughs> Fellowship Program Director at Riley Hospital for Children, and I'm also the ECMO Surgical Director here at Riley. And Manisha Badia, who is one of the general surgery residents at Indiana University. Hey, I'm Manisha. I'm one of the PGY3s at IU and just wrapped up my Global Surgery Fellowship through our AMPATH program. Whether you're a medical student, resident, pediatric surgery fellow, or attending, we want you to have access to some of the most relevant CDH articles in pediatric surgery. It is tough to stay on top of the literature. With this case-based presentation, we will break down management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia into an easy format to help you prepare for written or oral boards. All right, Dr. Gray, why don't you start us off? Okay, like any good discussion, let's start with a case-based presentation. We have a 33-year-old woman who is 20 weeks pregnant and presents for her routine prenatal ultrasound. This demonstrates a possible congenital diaphragmatic hernia on the left side. The remainder of her pregnancy has been unremarkable. What are your next steps, Manisha? I refer this mother to uh, MFM for a comprehensive fetal ultrasound to further assess the CDH. I'd also consider recommending an amniocentesis with karyotyping if the ultrasound verified a diaphragmatic defect. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about what you're looking for on the ultrasound. The ultrasound gives us a ton of information. It gives us the ability to evaluate fetal growth, the amniotic fluid, the amniotic fluid index, and many different parts of the anatomy. So we can look for other congenital anomalies. We can evaluate for any extra fluid from high drops or fetal heart failure. We can look at the pleural fluid, the ascites, the pericardial fluid, any skin edema, or an enlarged placenta. Often, a herniated stomach can result in polyhedramnios and predispose mom to preterm labor and delivery. Another important diagnostic test is the lung-to-head ratio, which measures the length and width of the visible lung tissue on ultrasound. The number is then divided by the head circumference, leading us to the lung-to-head ratio. We can determine whether there is mild pulmonary hyperplasia with the lung-to-head ratio greater than 1.4, moderate pulmonary hypoplasia with lung-to-head ratio between 1 and 1.4, or severe pulmonary hypoplasia with a lung-to-head ratio less than 1. This historically was used, but the more common calculation is actually the observed to expected lung-to-head ratio. This takes into account the fetus's gestational age. We can once again divide it by mild, moderate to severe CDH. With mild CDH defined as an observed to expect in lung to head ratio of greater than 35%, moderate is between 25 and 35%, and severe is less than 25%. On the ultrasound, we could also see the location of the liver. If it's up in the chest, this is also a core prognostic indicator. Okay, let's summarize the ultrasound findings. So if we have an LHR of less than one, an O to E LHR of less than 25%, 
and or liver up on the ultrasound. These are all worrisome for poor prognosis with increased mortality risk and greater risk for need of ECMO. Any other imaging you might obtain, Amanda? So I would also obtain a fetal echocardiogram and MRI. The fetal echo will be useful to evaluate for cardiac position, structure, and function. It is known that a combination of congenital heart disease and CDH drastically increase mortality, particularly if there is univentricular anatomy. Additionally, a modified Magoon index may be obtained to evaluate the risk of pulmonary hypertension. So the MMI is a measurement of the diameter of the left pulmonary artery plus the right pulmonary artery. And this is divided by the aorta at the level of the expected diaphragm. And an MMI less than one indicates a higher risk for pulmonary hypertension. Regarding the fetal MRI, this is typically obtained in 24 weeks or around the time of diagnosis to fully evaluate the anatomy and exclude possible alternative or coexistent diagnoses. And some fetal centers will also advocate for an optional 34-week MRI to more accurately assess lung volumes and better visualize the pulmonary arteries to predict the risk of pulmonary hypoplasia and pulmonary hypertension. With the MRI, we are able to obtain lung volumes utilizing volumetric software to calculate the total lung volume. And a total lung volume less than 20 mils at 34 gestational weeks indicates a poor prognosis. We can also calculate an O to E total fetal lung volume or TFL. Similar to the LHR, a TFL of less than 25% indicates a poor prognosis. Additionally, a modified Magoon index may be calculated from MRI. Okay, so let's summarize our MRI indicators. First, an ODE TFLV of less than 25% and liver up are all findings that tend towards increased mortality risk and the need for ECMO. So for this patient, let's say that on an ultrasound, we had an LHR of 1.6, ODE LHR of 32%, and the liver is down. The MRI indicates that the ODE TFLV is 32%. On fetal echo, there were no cardiac anomalies. And regarding remaining ultrasound findings, there were no additional congenital anomalies, and we had normal karyotyping. What are your next steps, Manisha? I plan to look at all the images myself and then have a multidisciplinary meeting with the parents, the MFM, the neonatologist, pediatric radiologist, and pediatric surgeon. Based on the overall semi-favorable prognostic profile, and no associated anomalies, I'd plan for the mother to continue her high-risk prenatal appointments with biweekly appointments beginning at 30 weeks. I'd make sure to emphasize and counsel the parents that there is still a 10% risk of intrauterine fetal demise during the third trimester, even in cases with no other abnormalities except the CDH. And because all CDH babies are high-risk, I'd recommend delivery at a tertiary care center with a level three or four NICU with access to pediatric surgery and possible ECMO standby. I'd also counsel mom that a C-section is only indicated for obstetrical considerations and we should target to schedule the delivery when the fetus is full term. Great. That sounds like a wonderful way to work with mom and the family. So say now the fetus was actually found to have markers of more severe CDH with an ODE LHR of 22% and an ODE TFLV of 20% with liver up in the chest. Amanda, are there any fetal interventions that could be considered for this patient? So currently there's the option of fetoscopic endoluminal tracheal occlusion, also known as FETO. It's offered at a handful of centers within the U.S. who participate in the North American Fetal Therapy Network, NAFNET, FETO Consortium. 
It's offered to severe left-sided CDH. So this is identified as an O to E LHR of less than 25% or 25 to 35% and liver up. And this is via participation in the total trial. Fetuses with an ODE LHR of less than 25%, they also have severe pulmonary hypoplasia and their chance of survival is less than 25% in historic studies. Fetal lung growth is known to be stimulated by tracheal occlusion due to continuous pulmonary fluid production, causing growth through mechanical transduction in these fetuses that have fetal. So with the fetoscopic endoluminal tracheal occlusion, there is an endoluminal insertion of an inflatable balloon, usually between 27 and 29 weeks. And then the balloon is removed about four weeks later. The balloon is inserted and removed while the mother is under local anesthesia. So you can look at the linked study that's associated with this podcast, but it was a study done in July of 2021 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was titled Randomized Trial of Fetal Surgery for Severe Left Diaphragmatic Hernia. So in this study, women were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio, and it was women carrying singleton fetuses with severe isolated CDH on the left side to fetal at 27 to 29 weeks gestation or expectant care. And primary outcomes were infant survival to discharge. So in the intention to treat analysis, 40% or 16 of the 40 in the fetal group survived to discharge compared to 15% or 60 of the 40 in the expectant group with a relative risk of 2.67. Survival to six months of age was identical to the survival to discharge. The incidence of preterm premature rupture of membranes was higher among women in the fetal group. And this was 47% in the fetal group compared to 11% in the expectant group with a relative risk of 4.51%. Additionally, preterm birth was also increased with 75% in the fetal group and 29% in the expectant group with a relative risk of 2.59%. In this study, the survival to discharge was 36% among infants in the fetal group and 14% in the expectant care group. So a pretty interesting study and does validate the use of fetal in the severe CDH patients. Great. That's a wonderful review of that paper, Amanda. I want to add a couple other points about that paper that I think are also really important. Um, One point is that most of these procedures were performed in Europe, while some were performed in United States centers. In the European centers, they did not offer ECMO support at all of the centers. So if you had a patient who was dying with diaphragmatic hernia, either in the fetal group or the expectant group, some centers would not be able to offer ECMO. So centers in the U.S. that routinely provide ECMO support for these patients saw this as a detractor for the patients, uh, for detractor for the study, and they felt that they couldn't take all of the all the results with a true look at the study uh, just because at their own centers, they might be able to offer ECMO. So you have to take the results of study with a little bit of a grain of salt, uh, seeing as how the outcomes are maybe not as high as some of the U.S. centers would expect in their expectant management group because they can't offer ECMO and some different treatment modalities. Let's summarize. In a fetus with the ODE LHR less than 25%, it indicates severe pulmonary hypoplasia. Fetal may be an option, and the mother should be referred to a center that offers fetal for consideration for initial fetal intervention. It's also important to remember that babies with any major congenital anomaly other than CDH are not eligible for fetal. Additionally, there are some contraindications for the mothers as well due to maternal contraindications uh, 
for comorbidities and body size. This highlights how important the prenatal workup is for both the baby and the mother. Now let's backtrack and say the mother is able to carry the pregnancy to her term scheduled delivery date with the initial favorable prognostic profile. The child is born and you're called immediately post-delivery. Manisha, please describe the optimal early management. Just like any of our general surgery patients, I'd immediately go see the patient and start with my ABCs. I'd assess the patient's airway, breathing, circulation, and determine stability with a set of vitals. Ideally, the child would have been immediately intubated to avoid bag mess ventilation, and they would have been initiated on low-pressure conventional ventilation with lung protective settings. These include a maximum peak inspiratory pressure of 25 centimeters of water and a peep of four to six centimeters of water. I'd make sure we have IV access via the umbilical artery and umbilical vein and start IV fluids and send routine labs. I'd also obtain a baseline venous blood gas to assess the pH and the CO2 levels, as well as measure preductal and postductal oxygenation saturations. My plan is to maintain preductal SPO2s greater than 85%. I'd also make sure we have an OG tube in place to minimize the accumulation of any bowel gas. I'd also review any prenatal imaging and do a complete physical exam focusing on the chest, abdomen, and assessing for any additional anomalies. Great. So you have a 2.3 kilogram patient who was intubated directly after birth. They're complaced on conventional pressure control ventilation with low peeps. The OG tube was placed with minimal return. What are your next steps? I'd obtain a chest x-ray to confirm line placement, as well as placement of the endotracheal tube and OG tubes. I'd also obtain an echo and a head ultrasound as a baseline should this neonate require ECMO. Okay. Let's say that this neonate's SAO2 remains greater than 90% on the preductal saturation. However, the PCO2 is 60. Well, how would you adjust the ventilator for that? So for this patient, I would continue general ventilation with permissive hypercapnia. A CO2 of around 60 is okay. However, it's important to remember that an early elevated CO2 is a poor prognostic indicator. And in this situation, I would maintain a low noise environment, position the patient right side up, avoid paralytic, and allow for a spontaneous respiration. So you say a PA CO2 of 60 is okay. It's important to remember you share that with the rest of your team. You want to talk to the neonatologist the nurse at the bedside, and your respiratory therapist to make sure that everyone is okay with the PaCO2 of 60, since it's not normally what we do with our patients. So let's say that your PaCO2 starts to progressively worsen despite general ventilation. What would you do, Manisha? I'd repeat a chest x-ray to make sure we have the endotracheal tube in good positioning and make sure that there's no new orthorax. If we're still making no progress, then I'd consider switching to a high-frequency oscillator vent and adjust the hertz and amplitude to affect ventilation. Normally with high frequency oscillatory ventilation, we wanna keep a mean airway pressure between 11 and 13, the hertz between six and 10, and the amplitude between 25 and 30. Okay, so let's say that on the initial echocardiogram, there was suprasystemic right ventricular pressures, right to left throat through, through the PDA and the foramen ovale, and decreased left ventricular systolic function. Would you do anything differently at this point? So I would support the systemic blood pressure with IV fluid and possible low-dose epinephrine or dopamine. Additionally, if the patient continued to have issues and the patient had right-to-left shunting at the PFO on the echo with right ventricular dysfunction, at this point, I would begin inhaled nitric oxide at 20 parts per million. 
With this, I would assess whether I saw improvement in the PO2 within the next couple of hours. With LV dysfunction on echo, I would consider using IV milrinone as a pulmonary vasodilator. I think it's important to emphasize that we have to be careful with nitric oxide in the setting of LV dysfunction, since it can cause pulmonary back pressure and also can lead to pulmonary edema. Lastly, a paralytic may also be helpful in this situation. Okay. So let's say that despite all the measures you've been talking about here, uh, you're instituting treatment for pulmonary hypertension and maybe even a little bit of a presser, your patient remained acidotic, hypoxic, and or hypercapnic despite maximal interventions with a preductal saturation of 80%, postductal saturation of 60% with a 20-point split, blood pressure of 45 over 25 with a MAP of 30, and a PaCO2 of 70. The oxygenation index here is elevated. This is a measure calculated by multiplying the mean air pressure by the FiO2 and dividing by the PaO2. The higher the number, the worse the prognosis. And in general, a value of greater than 40 is associated with higher risk of mortality. If I had tried multiple different minimally invasive interventions with that without seeing the patient improve and the head ultrasound was normal, I'd discuss ECMO with the parents. Yeah, I think this is the right move here. Despite me being a person who loves ECMO, I think it's the right decision for the patient and the family. So how about this, Manisha? Can you please describe your ECMO cannulation and the settings you would use? Yeah. So I'd make sure I have my medications for paralysis, sedation, and anticoagulation with 50 to 100 units of heparin per kilogram at the bedside, along with the NICU team. I'd obtain a preoperative ACT. Then I'd position the patient with a shoulder bump and head turned to the left. I'd ask our NICU team to dose the sedation and paralytic medications. Then I'd prep and drape the patient in the NICU, performing our standard timeout, discussing the patient, procedure, and site of surgery. Then I'd proceed with a two-centimeter transverse cervical incision over the lower aspect of the right sternocleidomastoid, just above the right clavicle. I'd dissect through the muscle to identify both the right IJ and the carotid artery. I'd be careful to avoid any vessel spasm. I'd place two O-silk sutures proximally and distally around the IJ, and then dissect the common carotid and once again place two O-silk sutures proximally and distally. As I prepare to ligate my carotid artery, I'd make sure that the heparin had been administered at least three minutes prior to the ligation. Then I'd proceed with placement of my carotid cannula followed by placement of my IJ cannula. I'd ensure there's no bubbles in the system with heparinized saline prior to connecting to the circuit. I target an initial flow of 100 mils per kilo per minute, and then I'd secure the cannulas and close the skin. Okay, sounds like if you did a nice operation, you've got the patient supported on ECMO. So now let's say that two hours after initiating ECMO, your SpO2 is 100%, your PaO2 is 200, and your PaCO2 is 30. Your mean arterial pressure is now 65. Is this okay or should you make some changes? So at this point in time, I would wean the FiO2 target to a PaO2 between 60 and 100. I would also wean the sleep flow to a target PaCO2 of 40 to 50 and wean the pressors for a MAP around 40. I would also make sure that we initiate TPN as soon as possible, mostly to optimize nutrition in this patient. Great. I think you made a couple of good points here and I want to clarify why we're worried about some of those numbers I mentioned before. So first, from an ECMO standpoint, we always say that oxygen is one hell of a drug. It's great for our patients, but too much oxygen is harmful. If we have high oxygen levels in our patients, we can get oxygen-free radicals 
that can actually cause inflammatory damage to the lungs and brain. So we want to keep that PaO2 level in the 60 to 100 range, especially in the neonate. Additionally, for a PaCO2, we can assume that our patient with the small lungs is going to have to come off ECMO with a little bit higher PaCO2 of normal with that permissive hypercapnia we talked about earlier. So when you're on ECMO, you want to keep your PaCO2 a little bit higher so that the patient is more conditioned to come off ECMO a little bit smoother later on. Finally, we don't want our babies on ECMO to get, to get hypertension. The higher the blood pressure is systemically, the higher the intracerebral pressure can be, leading to potential risk for intracranial bleeding. Okay, Manisha, back to you. How would you assess when the patient's ready for an operation? Uh, I think this is pretty tough. Overall, there's a 50% survival for patients who require ECMO for CDH. In general, there are three main lines of thought when it comes to operating on patients with CDH on ECMO support. Patients either undergo early operations within the first three days of life, late operations after weeks of ECMO support, or waiting until the patient can be weaned off ECMO entirely. Early operations have the advantage of avoiding tissue edema and enlargement of the liver and spleen, which are associated with ECMO. And this early operation obviously relieves intrathoracic compression early and restores normal anatomy. Additionally, the coagulation parameters are still relatively normal in the early periods of ECMO. Patients who undergo an operation weeks after initiating ECLS have the benefit of knowing the severity of many of the comorbidities that they might also have, including any genetic anomalies. It's felt that by waiting for the pulmonary hypertension to resolve over time on ECMO, it may allow for a quicker wean off ECMO support after the repair. The best results are seen with patients who are able to wean entirely off ECMO prior to repair. However, a certain subset of the most severe patients may not be able to wean off ECMO prior to repair. For either of these options, you want to make sure the patient is stable and not requiring maximum ECMO support and that we are weaning pressors. At our institution, we prefer to repair patients early on ECMO to allow for restoration of normal anatomy and uh, to attempt to avoid potential complications related to being on ECMO for long periods of time from a circuit perspective, which include limiting clot burden and DIC. Great. Well, thanks for talking about that. So, Amanda, let's say that we're going to go ahead and do an early repair in ECMO in the first 24 to 48 hours. Why don't you walk us through that operation? Sure. I'd love to. Uh, Before I start, I just want to put in a little plug for another article that we attached. It is the guidelines for uh, CDH and CDH repair on ECMO and uh, ECMO parameters for our CDH patients. So go ahead and refer to that uh, with this podcast. All right, back to the repair. So I would repair this CDH at bedside, given that we're on ECMO. Regarding my anticoagulation, I would make sure that I was on a high-risk, low-dose heparin protocol with anticoagulation goals of lower antitiny levels and ACT levels, depending on my center's particular anticoagulation protocols. Prior to surgery, I would hold heparin. I would also consider giving Amicar as an antifibrinolytic as a bolus a couple hours before surgery to decrease the bleeding risk associated with surgery on ECMO. For operative repair, I would place the patient supine with a small bump under the side of my repair. I'd make a subcostal incision one centimeter below the costal margin. And after exploring the abdomen, I would gently reduce the herniated contents back into the abdomen and retract there. If I was unable to do that with the uh, abdominal contents 
in the abdomen, then I would eviscerate some of them until I was able to see the diaphragm. I would then assess the diaphragm and ensure that there is no hernia sac. I would also evaluate the chest for any intrathoracic congenital lung lesions, such as a bronchopulmonary sequestration. I would minimally mobilize the posterior lateral rim from the retroperitoneum with electrocautery by dividing the pleural peritoneal membrane. It's important to do this as minimal as possible so you decrease your bleeding risk in this scenario. And then if I could close the defect primarily without tension, I would with horizontal mattress pledgeted permanent sutures. Otherwise, I'd use a Gore-Tex patch to close the defect and make sure that it was not under tension. Prior to closure, I would place a chest tube and I would also place an abdominal drain. And due to concern for potential postoperative bleeding, I would also potentially use Avatine, Surgiseal, and Tocil as necessary. I would also make sure that the abdominal organs were placed correctly and I would determine if there was any duodenal obstruction or malrotation present and also relieve any kinking of the bowel. Uh, once the diaphragm was repaired and the abdominal organs were placed in the correct orientation, I would then close the abdomen. I would hold the heparin for a couple more hours and then resume on our high-risk protocol and give Amacar as a drip for 24 hours after surgery. Great. Sounds like a wonderful operation. I feel like we did one of these together recently, didn't we? So let's talk about our next step here. Manisha, say you're the resident on call overnight. Dr. Jensen signs this patient out to you. What are your post-operative goals and what are you looking for? Uh, my first goal would to make, be make sure this patient doesn't bleed. So I keep a close eye on anticoagulation uh, within the first 24 to 48 hours or so with goals of platelets greater than 125, fibrinogen greater than 150, and a hematocrit around 40. I'd also continue to keep anti-10A levels between 0.2 and 0.4 and ACTs between 150 and 170. Once we're out of that first, you know, 24 to 48 hour period, I loosen up my anticoagulation goals. For other aspects of care, I keep the OG tube until the output was minimal and start enteral nutrition as soon as possible. I'd also continue to monitor and treat the pulmonary hypertension with assistance of our pulmonary hypertension team to help optimize care. Lastly, I'd work with the NICU to try to wean our baby off ECMO, sedation, and any presser requirements. Great. Sounds like you've taken care of the patient overnight and they, uh, they get through it all right. So let's summarize some of the key takeaway points from this case discussion regarding the workup and management of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. It really comes down to the severity of the CDH. Prenatally, we can attempt to risk stratify. With a prenatal ultrasound, the LHR of less than one, ODE LHR less than 25%, and liver up are all worrisome for poor prognosis with increased mortality risk or greater risk for need for ECMO. On the MRI, the O to E TFLV of less than 25% and liver up are both findings that tend towards increased mortality risk and need for ECMO. And with severe CVH, it may be important to consider FETO. Once the infant is born, it is important to stabilize with immediate endotracheal intubation, replogo replacement, and, pl and placement of pulse oximeters in the pre and postductal saturations. Additionally, access should be obtained for an umbilical artery and umbilical venous lines. It's important to start with general ventilation strategies and allow for permissive hypercapnia. If the PCO2 continues to worsen despite general ventilation, you can attempt alternate ventilatory modes, such as high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. However, if the infant remains acidotic, hypoxic, and or hypercapnic despite maximal interventions, ECMO should be discussed and initiated after a normal head ultrasound is found. With repair and ECMO, it's important to repair both pre- and post-operatively for bleeding risk with anticoagulation considerations, but also use of hemostatic agents. Regarding repair, 
you may or may not need a Gore-Tex patch or some other sort of flap repair if you have appropriate training. Okay, team, we hope you've enjoyed this case discussion of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. It's a very complex topic. The patients have a hole in their diaphragm, so make sure you don't get a hole in your own brain when thinking about it. Think about these patients on a step-by-step basis and use your center's CDH management guidelines. Until next time, I'm Brian Gray from Riley Children's. And I'm Amanda Jensen, Senior Fellow at Riley Children's. And I'm Anisha Batia, General Surgery Resident at Indiana University. And remember, guys, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.